The Moment Has Arrived. I'm Tom Dickinson, and welcome back to The Moment. It's been a while. You're looking well. I like what you've done with your hair. Since we're back with the new season of The Moment, you're probably wondering how Season 2 will shake things up and depart from the format established by Season 1. The answer is, it won't. This is still a podcast where I talk to a different Doctor Who fan each week about a particular moment from an episode of Doctor Who that my guest has chosen for whatever reason. That seems to have been working well for me so far, and I don't see any reason to change it now. Although speaking of change, a lot has changed in Doctor Who fandom since last we spoke. When I wrapped up season one of The Moment in October 2018, the moment under consideration for that episode was the Doctor's regeneration into a new form played by Jodie Whittaker. My guest for that conversation was Alyssa Frankie from the blog Whovian Feminism and the podcast This Week in Time Travel, which is sadly now dormant. At the time, we hadn't yet gotten to know this new incarnation, the 13th Doctor. Now, nine months later, Whitaker's first full series is behind us, and we're looking forward to the second. And this time, she's a bit less of a stranger to us, and more of a beloved old friend. A bit later, in Season 2 of The Moment, we'll be talking about some moments with Jodie Whittaker from Series 11, but for now, let's kick off this new season with a moment brought to you by Alyssa's co-host from the late-lamented This Week in Time Travel, Chip Sutterth. You may also be familiar with Chip from his long-running Doctor Who podcast, The Two-Minute Time Lord, and if you are, then you probably won't be surprised to know that Chip wanted to talk about a moment from The End of Time, David Tennant's two-part swan song as the Tenth Doctor. It's something of a divisive story. Fans either tend to love it or hate it. If you haven't seen The End of Time, or if you've blocked it out because you dislike it just that much, I won't recap the storyline because a lot of bonkers stuff happens, only some of which matters. Suffice it to say that the Tenth Doctor spends the entire story dreading the likelihood that he will soon regenerate, and the possibility that he may in fact just die altogether. After emerging from confrontations with both the Master and the Mad Time Lord President Rassilon, the Doctor must ultimately absorb a massive amount of radiation in order to save the life of his companion, Wilfred Mott. This causes the Doctor to regenerate, and he can hold back the change for a little while longer, but change is coming, and, well, I'll let Chip take it from here. So after a very long, very emotional, very melodramatic denouement to the episode... The 10th Doctor has gone off all over creation to visit the companions and acquaintances that he made along the way thanks to the writerly pen of Russell T. Davis. The Doctor staggers finally into the TARDIS. The TARDIS takes off. He is very tired. He is very sad. He is very much in pain. We are at peak emo. And he says, I don't want to go. This, Tom Dickinson, is not my moment. My moment happens immediately afterward when he explodes into a burst of energy and the coral of the TARDIS console room comes crashing down. And there's this chin shining like a beacon out of the flames. 
and Matt Smith emerges. His eyes are wide, and everything changes. The music changes dramatically. He is suddenly excited. Yes, eyes too narrowed. I've had worse. All of the angst is gone. He is establishing that he still has limbs, he still has fingers, he still has hair. And still not ginger. It's not ginger, you know, that's a frustration, but he's trying to remember something else. The TARDIS is crashing. Crashing! And he is dying. And he yells a word. I guess my first real question is, why? Why the end of time or why this moment? Because a lot of people have been asking me over the years, why the end of time? This this why is actually a multifaceted question. <laughs> the first question is, and I think this is kind of the elephant in the room, if you go by audience appreciation surveys at the time that it aired, the end of time, it's a massively beloved story. But among certain, especially vocal segments of the fandom, this is a derided and ridiculed mess. But... I think you are on record as perhaps the universe's most staunch defender of this story, and I'm curious to know why that is. I'm not sure that I'm the most staunch defender, but when I was on a podcasting sabbatical, I did go on Graham Burke's Reality Bomb uh, and the Gallery of the Underrated uh, to defend it. The End of Time actually isn't my favorite Doctor Who story of all time. It's not my favorite RTD story, but I do think if you liked what RTD was putting down over those four years and the specials, and I very very much did. This is sort of the apotheosis of it. It's everything that is there. Everything that is barmy. The secret books of Saxon spoke of the potions of life. Everything that is emotional and melodramatic. Big concepts. Um, Gallifrey returning. The Time Lords return. In RTD's very last story. Gallifrey. Hanging in the skies over Earth and things like that. It's just... For the end of time itself! It's really, really big, and it's really, really ridiculous. And I have an affection for ridiculousness. So when people who were cooling on Russell T. Davis's stuff and were like, oh, thank God he's finally gone, this was so horrible, I was like, this is everything that he wanted to do. This is concentration of who he is and what the show was. And if it wasn't completely to your taste, the stuff that you still liked about Doctor Who in those four years is still there in the middle of this. The I'm going to die. Sad scene with Wilf. Well, so am I one day. Don't you dare. All right, I'll try not to. <laughs> the tension. Where's your TARDIS? And the pathos. You could be so wonderful. Between it? the Doctor and you're the Master, you know, it's all Stone there. Cold, brilliant, you are. I swear, you really are. Uh, so I, I do have really, really good feelings about the end of time. I'm not blind to its faults, but it is big. It is dramatic. It is Buffyish. It is everything that I was looking for when Doctor Who came back. Now, am I correct in characterizing the Tenth Doctor as your Doctor? You are, although Jodie Whittaker is really, really, um, she's really catching up. That is good to hear. And I'm also correct in saying that, like, the Russell T. Davies era of the show was the version of the show that spoke most to you. It spoke more to my heart. I never fell out of love with Doctor Who. Just because I preferred RTDs to Stephen Moffat's run didn't mean that uh, I was dissatisfied by Stephen Moffat's run by any means, you know. Um, I came to podcasting about Doctor Who late in Russell T. Davis's era, and it would have been a real slog to continue going through that with Stephen Moffat. 
profit for something that I didn't care for. But there was something more about RTD's approach to it that, you know, made me feel an affinity to it. And part of that was the character of the Tenth Doctor and the humans decay. his tendency you wither and you die. to emotionally attach Imagine watching that happen to, someone you- to his companions. Well, Doctor... The fact that he was flawed and yet charismatic. And I also really liked that he became a more problematic character in some ways as those three years uh, went on. He starts off as really happy-go-lucky and casual, uh, too casual about his travels, along yeah, with Rose Tyler. Get back inside and go somewhere else. <laughs> and then bad stuff starts to happen. I thought it was better, and he takes on some guilt for that, and he makes some wrong choices but for that. Some things that went wrong, culminating with the waters of Mars, and that is catnip for me because that is a character arc. That is following somebody trying to be a good man, making some bad decisions, and then running away from the consequences of those decisions. Kind of like uh, Planet of the Spiders. Do you mean me? Only good. One of the questions I was eventually going to get to was where this kind of ranks in terms of regeneration stories, but a shot has been fired. (laughs) Um, We'll we'll let that sit sit for now. In some ways, this story is not merely the last Russell T. Davies and Tenth Doctor story, but it is peak Russell T. Davies and peak Tenth Doctor. So why is it that you have chosen the moment in the story where Russell T. Davies has stopped writing? Exits the building. He has nothing to do with this moment. Yes, he has handed his proverbial pen off to someone else, and the Tenth Doctor no longer exists in the narrative of Doctor Who, starting immediately before the moment you chose. So, um, why? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really damn good question. And the answer is that even though the RTD years are my favorite as a unit, and even though the Tenth Doctor is my favorite Doctor in general, I can't think of a single more sublime moment in Doctor Who television history than when Stephen Moffat takes the reins and says, it's going to be different. And more to the point, it's all better now. Think about that amazing Murray Gold music for the 11th Doctor's debut. Murray Gold is not a subtle musician by any means, but throughout the end of time, you know, the music has been a sense of menace, a sense of oppression, and then we have gone through this Latin chanting oud stuff for what feels like about 45 minutes. It's not that, but it feels like it, of the doctor staggering away from his final meeting with Rose. He's in the snow, forcing himself to walk nobly to the TARDIS. You know, we have just been through something of a victory lap for Russell T. Davis, you know, like we've been saying, peak Russell T. Davis. But it's also sort of a, I'm done, it's Frank Sinatra, I did it my way kind of stuff. And it's really long, and it's really depressing, and it is designed to make you feel bad that the Tenth Doctor is going away, that he is dying and another man is about to go sauntering off into the distance. And then the music just kicks in. Oh my god, it's so fun! It's bongo drums. It's 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 Donkey Konga. The eleventh Doctor's first action is to make a face at the camera because he's so surprised it's something new, and it is about delight and excitement and enthusiasm because Stephen Moffat knows who he's working with on this episode. He knows Russell T. Davis's tendencies. He's seen the script. He knows how heavy it's going to be, and Stephen Moffat knows that if he doesn't get this moment 
exactly right. There are a lot of fans and TV critics out there who are just waiting for him to fail. It is time to get people excited about Doctor Who, not mourning the Doctor Who has just left. And these two minutes, it is a perfect moment. <laughs> the music is interesting to me because you're, you're right. There's something very distinctive about it and very different from what came before. But it's also very different from what comes after it because the 11th Doctor is so strongly associated with a particular musical motif, the I am the Doctor. How do you think this scene would play if it were rescored with that music as opposed to the music that it's got now? Strangely. Strangely. And Matt Smith isn't exactly playing the same character that he's playing in The Eleventh Hour. Mm. He's coming in cold. He hasn't had a whole lot of time to look at Stephen Moffat's scripts and get a sense of how he's going to play the character. And I think he's even said in some interviews, I think, that, you know, he he, he wasn't entirely satisfied with his performance, that he hadn't he hadn't felt like he'd gotten the character yet. But the Eleventh Doctor's theme is all about drama. It's all about heroism. It's music that is played in hockey arenas to this day. But we, we don't need majesty here. And the 11th Doctor is anything but majestic as he's scrambling around the console, spitting out cinders, which was a great bit of ad-libbing by Matt Smith when actual cinders fell into his mouth on the set. <laughs> it's a ride, and this is, this, this is music for a ride, and his attitude at this is, is at a ride. This is regeneration in its, in its purest form. It's the equivalent, I think, of Jodie Whittaker staring into her reflection in the TARDIS console and saying, Oh, Berlin. It is that same reaction. And we rarely see doctors regretting having changed. We rarely see that. But after a whole lot of lead-up to the 10th Doctor fearing change, again, those attachment issues, it's completely forgotten. The 11th Doctor just doesn't care. He's crashing and that he's overjoyed by that. That's what I needed to see in that moment as I was sad about losing my doctor and wondering what's coming next. And what Stephen Moffat presents for me is, hey, it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Come on. Um, I also love this story. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite parts of the story. And it's something I think a lot about why that is, because in some ways, this moment is a negation of the rest of the story. It absolutely is. Like when, when the doctor says to Wilf in part one of the story, even if I change, it feels like dying. He's talking hypothetically about a thing that he thinks is going to happen soon in his future. Everything I am dies. And now we're seeing that thing happen on screen. Some new man goes sauntering away. Do you think he was wrong? It depends on a certain point of view, said Obi-Wan. It is exactly the way that the Tenth Doctor would think about it. And it's exactly the way the Eleventh Doctor did not think about it in the Eleventh Doctor's closing regeneration scene. We all change. Now, it helps that the same showrunner was about to bring in a new actor. We're all different people, all through Uh, But when the Eleventh Doctor says... That's okay, that's good, you've got to keep moving so long as you remember all the people that you used to be. We saw this in The Day of the Doctor, the differences in which this supposed same character looks at the world and looks at the past. The man who regrets. Holds on and doesn't hold on. And the man who forgets. The Tenth Doctor is all about no. attachment and drama and not being able to let go. That's the Tenth Doctor's fatal flaw. And then he doesn't have any choice to let go. And the Eleventh Doctor, he's completely forgotten about all of that because he's alive, he's got limbs, he's got fingers, he's got a TARDIS to crash land, and he couldn't be happier about it. When I'm the saddest, 
I have a tendency to ruminate. I have a tendency to really get locked into a dark place with myself and worry about worst-case scenarios and fret. And I've had a lot of stuff, bad stuff happen to me in the last year. I haven't brought myself to listen to one of your episodes from the previous season because it's about loss and coming to terms with that. And I lost my mother in August. So I spend a lot of my days walking around like the 10th Doctor if I let myself the 10th Doctor in these later episodes where he's left all of his friends that were crowding the TARDIS console and journeys in behind. He's just going to go on alone. They leave. Because that's all he's good for. Because they should, or they find someone else. He turns his companions into weapons and things like that. Some of them, some of them. Forget me. At my worst, I suppose in the end, I'm the 10th Doctor at the end of the end of time. They break my heart. And then Stephen Moffat just comes up and says, hey, change is good. Change is better. Listen to this jaunty music. <laughs> so what kind of a first impression is it that you think Matt Smith is making here? He's, first of all, the 10th Doctor really traded on his... Pretty boy, with me, I said. I'm not saying that Matt Smith is not a handsome guy, but the 10th Doctor... Oh, I'm pretty boy. ...was always well, portrayed me. as a pretty face. Pretty? And David Tennant and Russell T. Davis really leaned into that. And in addition to that, there's a certain... You go my way, doll. Is there any other way to go, Daddy-O? Straight from the fridge, Aren't man. I cool? <laughs> sort of smug self-satisfaction with uh, the Tenth Doctor. The 11th Doctor has his moments as they ramp up to series. When, when he's changing into his new costume and, uh, and Amy Pond decides yeah. that she's going and to watch. Now you're taking your clothes off. He's pretty smug about off. that. Turn your back if it embarrasses you. But you in this minute, clothes? smugness isn't part of it. As a matter of fact, I think the best thing about the 11th Doctor in this is the self-absorption is just completely gone. He is in the moment. He's excited by what's going on. He is exploring what has happened to him. The lens has shifted outward, which is a way healthier way to be. And God, you know, when you're around somebody whose lens has shifted outward, aren't those the people that you want to spend more time with? And do you think he lives up to that first impression in, in subsequent series? Well, I'll answer your question with a question. What do you think my favorite Russell T. Davis episode of Doctor Who is? Oh, that is a good question. Um, You're not going to get it right because it's a trick question. My favorite Russell T. Davis episode is The Eleventh Hour. (laughs) Which, it has many of the trappings. It has many of the trappings. It's Stephen Moffat executing a perfect pivot, uh, giving you the kind of story that would feel very familiar to you having existed on a diet of Russell T. Davis' uh, Doctor Who for five years. And it's the same Doctor. He is focused on Amelia Pond. He's not focused on himself. He's trying to solve a problem with Prisoner Zero and a crack in a wall and all of this other stuff. It's not about him. Mm. It's not about him at this point. It becomes more about him and the relationships later on. The first face, this face saw. And he becomes just as attached see it onto my hearts. to Amy Pond. Amelia Pond. As he ever did to will be. Rose Tyler. And many of the faults that people found in Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who, I think, come up in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, especially when it comes to big endings and things like that. And the 11th Doctor turns out to be just as much of a player as the 10th Doctor was in many ways. But especially in the early parts of the fifth series, that Doctor we are promised at the end of the end of time, in my moment, 
we get that doctor for several episodes to come. How do you think this compares to other debut scenes from other doctors, uh, especially in the the framework of the new series in which there's something of a more consistent format and use of special effects and way that it's presented? Well, let's see here. For some reason, Christopher Eccleston doesn't destroy his console room. It's all the way of cheating death. I guess they decided that that would be a little expensive. (laughs) And... Except... He's giving Rose the matter-of-fact... It means I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not going to see you again. But he's being practical about it. Not like this. Not with this daft old face. And Christopher Eccleston wouldn't have uh, played it any other way. And just like Moffat making the Smith to Capaldi transformation, you know, RTD doesn't have anything invested in making it seem so awful and devastating that Eccleston is leaving. So... Tennant pops up and tries to just continue the conversation about Barcelona. New teeth. You know. That's weird. It's where was Observation I? about the teeth and then... Oh, that's right. ...trying to continue... Barcelona. ...as though nothing is different. So this scene, on the other hand, everything is devastating and then everything is different. And that's the renewal that I so treasure. For Matt Smith, no. it's a regeneration sneeze hmm. at the end. Please don't change. Matt Smith sneezes... Peter Capaldi shows up, and we get some serious attack eyebrows. This transition is a lot like the Capaldi to Whitaker transition, you know. Instead of a long walk in the snow, well, it is preceded by a walk in the snow. Capaldi delivers that stirring monologue to his future self. I let you go. And then... There's the transformation, and then there's the expression of delight. I threw some shade at Planet of the Spiders because it's really not a great story. But Choji in front of the unconscious doctor talking about... The old man must die, and the new man will discover to his inexpressible joy that he has never existed. Mm. That DNA is all through this regeneration scene. I keep coming back to the word delight, Tom. (laughs) Uh, Delight is so essential in continuing the story of Doctor Who from doctor to doctor to doctor. I remember when my wife lost her interest in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. It was midway through the sixth series. And that was really disappointing to me because that meant that my most faithful Doctor Who watching companion was gone. And for the time being, it was going to be a solo bit for me again. Mm. You know, Matt Smith's debut delighted me. And that delight carried me through his years, and I still found things to delight me in the Capaldi years. You know, it was great stuff. But I watched my wife see Jodie Whittaker in The Woman Who Fell to Earth. And if there's one thing I'm certain of, when people need help, I never refuse. And I saw right delight this is gonna be fun. in her eyes watching the show again. And, you know, that's what Doctor Who is all about. Those moments of regeneration, those moments of delight are what keep us tied to this wonderful series for so, so long through so many changes. Even when the changes aren't completely to our taste, just the fact of renewal and rebooting is itself delightful, and it reassures us that our show is going to be here with us for so much more time to come. I think it's admirable that that, uh, someone else's delight in the show is such an important 
factor in your conception of it. That's also kind of gets to something that I I did find kind of puzzling about your decision to choose the moment when your doctor was no more and when someone else's doctor sauntered on screen as your doctor sauntered off or or died. And kind of pivoting off of that, I kind of want to ask you for advice because my doctor was Peter Capaldi and Jodie Whittaker for all the moments of delight I do get from her performance and from the series, it's good, but it's it's just not the Doctor Who of my heart. So what the heck am I going to do, Chip? Especially as a Doctor Who podcaster who suddenly finds that his Doctor has, has vacated the premises. Well, the good thing about being the Doctor Who podcaster that you are, Tom, is that you are exploring all of time and space, the everywhere and every when, with people who are looking at the universe with to borrow a line from a completely other franchise, the awe and wonder of a child. You know, these moments that mean so much to us come from 55 years of history. Doctor Who has been my cup of tea, and it has been not my cup of tea. But there are people who are not happy with the 13th Doctor's era thus far. There are people who aren't impressed with the writing of Series 11. It's not speaking to them, whatever. And they're not all angry misogynists with uh, YouTube channels. That Doctor Who changes and becomes less than what you imagine, that's inevitable in this constantly changing series. But I take pleasure in the delight that other people have. I take pleasure in just the existence of something new happening. I take pleasure in the fact that other people are seeing things that I don't see. And I took pleasure in that in, at the times when I was the most irritated with Stephen Moffat. And, uh, oh, oh, look, this the, the plot that you have created for this storyline looks like the cursive writing of Jeremy me bury me from the good place here this broke me uh that broke me i'm aren't you clever sir i'm done but the fact that other people do find it clever i don't look at that with disbelief or look down on them for being less evolved in their doctor who appreciation than i am i'm like oh look you're seeing something that i didn't see and that's great. And I'm reasonably confident that I will have some of those moments uh, there again. But, you know, Tom, part of it is also the fact that I am the kind of person who, in a glass half full, glass half empty situation, when it comes to media that I enjoy, the great stuff that I hear and see tends to override the, the clunker moments. I think that's kind of focusing on, funnily enough, the, the small moments of delight is probably where I'm going to find the most of my Doctor Who joy in the coming few years. And I think it's also one of the reasons why I like the end of time so much, because I don't think I could make an argument that the story holds together or has any kind of real narrative coherency, but there are so many moments in the show that I'm, I'm just inclined to, to enjoy it anyway. And I think that's probably where I end up going in the future. It's how it's worked for me. And while it was disappointing that, you know, my wife couldn't see the moments that I kept wanting to point towards midway through Series 6 through Series 10, you know, there were all kinds of things that I wanted to point to and say, look at this, this is wonderful. She did the sensible thing for her. It wasn't working for her. She walked away. And that's fine. But she came back and now we get to point toward moments again and i get to share those moments and that's the glorious thing i could never turn my back completely on doctor who it would have to do some stuff unimaginably awful that i cannot 
tautology. I cannot imagine them doing. But I'll always be able to find those moments. Even if it did completely lose its way, the eras of Doctor Who that I love most dearly are still there and still have new things that I discover in them when I when I go back to them. It's a very expansive franchise and it expands in all directions at the same time, sometimes it seems. Uh, and that was what this moment was for me. The decline of an incredibly popular Doctor and then two minutes of exuberance. Something new is happening. Open yourself to it, Chip. And I said, yes, Stephen, I will. How did you get this number? And that is going to do it for this episode of The Moment. Big thanks to Chip, who you can follow on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time lord. As I mentioned before, Chip used to host This Week in Time Travel with my previous guest, Alyssa, and those episodes are pretty evergreen, so you can always go listen to them over on the Incomparable Network of Podcasts, where Chip also appears on various other shows from time to time to play games or to talk about media. And I'm thrilled that Chip has just relaunched the Two Minute Time Lord podcast over at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com. For the website, you spell it out. For the Twitter, you just use the numeral two. As for the moment, I hope you'll stick around because we're just getting started on a brand new run of 13 weekly episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at The Moment Pod, rate and review in Apple Podcasts, and oh, this is new, the show now has a Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash themomentpod. Over the weekend, I posted an announcement in the podcast feed with more information about the Patreon, and more information about why I think that regardless of whether you choose to support the show on Patreon, you should also give money to orgs that support families held in camps at the southern U.S. border, and also to orgs that advocate for trans rights. Listen to that announcement for more information, or head to themomentpod.com, where you're going to find show notes for this week's episode, which include relevant links. I am Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment. <laughs>